2: ABE in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The author Kim Faye has led what her character Imogen might describe as an adventurous cosmopolitan life. The Seattle native lived in Vietnam for four years, still travels often to Southeast Asia, and wrote the award winning book Communion, a culinary journey through Vietnam. Later this hour, Kim Fei will tell us about her recent novel, Love and Saffron, an intergenerational story of friendship, food, and love. Plus, speaking of the arts, our series of local artists in their own words today features Travis Smith. First, fine art and cocktails make a great pairing. A New Atlanta distillery takes the idea further by bringing them together at the Distillery of Modern Art, the park gallery, part distillery, and part cocktail lounge recently opened in Chandley. Founder Seth Watson joins me now, if Zoom to talk more about his new venture. Seth, welcome to City Light. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, Lois. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here and Uh,
0: Tell us about your personal relationship to the visual art. So I spent nearly 20 years in hospitality designing and producing uh, private events all over this city, all throughout the state of Georgia, and really throughout the southeast for most of my professional career. And our goal was really to create something I don't really like the term outside the box, but we were generally creating something that people hadn't seen before. Even if we were taking an event that was themed, we were stepping it up to make it feel like reality versus a prop. So we just spent so many years designing for other people, creating masterpiece designs that were really meant to be portable, set up for an event of 200 people, upwards of 10,000 people, and then had to break them down and then redesign something brand new for the next day. So I constantly spent time around just amazing other artists and being able to visually create something that brought people to another world, another part of the country that was representative of their ideas, sort of scribbled on a napkin and then we had to create that reality. So I was constantly around much more talented human beings than myself, but I was able to draw inspiration from these people and lean on the community as needed. Hmm.
2: Well, making and purveying craft distilled beverages may be considered an art, though perhaps more of a technical science. How
0: did you become a distiller? So I personally had to hire a very good distiller to run our facility, But as I sold my previous business, I went on an adventure of just visiting every craft distillery under the sun that would allow me in their building to learn alongside them, learn what worked, what hadn't worked, where they failed, where they could have done things better, and just really got an opportunity to be in these facilities, not just as a consumer, but helping out on staff, lugging grain around, cooking down alcohol, working through mashing and cooking and fermentation. And so as that process started, thankfully I had a few years prior to pandemic where I was able to travel a couple times a month. What I realized early was that I did not know enough, no matter how much people would allow me in their facility to sort of learn. And so what I did is had to hire a consultant in the spirits industry to basically handhold me through the process so that I could learn everything from financial modeling to what products actually work in the market and why, how to design something that is very different than what everybody else is doing in a crowded field. And so we started to do recipe development at that time where I was visiting a friend's distillery out west. I got to go in and physically create recipes alongside my consultant and another distiller and got to put them to the test and really see, hey, are these things that people would actually like? So I was doing that for some time and was coming back to Atlanta, doing blind taste tests with friends, with random people via social media, and just really trying to pull away the marketing side a bit and really understand how to produce a product that people would seek. I'm intrigued. What
2: ignited your passion for spirits?
0: So around 1999, I was at the University of Florida. And just like every other college kid, hanging out at the bars, drinking lots of beer. And what I realized is that I kept spending so much time having to go just to the bathroom because of the sheer volume of fluid that I was taking in. (laughs) And I realized early, I said, you know, I need to get away from beer. It makes me feel heavy. I don't like the idea of having to have so much uh, fluid in my body. I'm going to switch to spirits just kind of on a whim. And so from that point on, you know, consuming two ounces of something versus 12 ounces, 16 ounces, 24 ounces of something, you start to be able to sort of appreciate the small amount that you're drinking. And I started looking for nuance. And what I found at the time, especially in the late nineties going into early two thousands was that there is a world of difference in alcohol that it would be foolish of me to just sort of stop on one thing and say, okay, I love this. I'm sticking to this. So I went on a hunt for the next 10 plus years, 15 years, looking for unique spirits. I settled into whiskey pretty early on. I was very attracted to the idea of an aged product, having to physically make something and then wait years to see if it's going to be any good. So I started to dive deeply into whiskey, which I would say is still my true, true passion with gin coming in uh, second place there. And so I just was wandering the world, all my travels from you know, being a young 20-something all the way up to being 42 now, I just kept looking for something different, something unique. And the craft world was very small at the time and went from about 200 distilleries in the country 15 years ago to about 2,000 craft distilleries in the country. And so that just kept waking me up to think, okay, there's something interesting going on out there, but people are not exposed to it. So I sold my previous business in 2017, with the idea that I would stop going to create for others and create something for for myself that I can then share with the world. The state of Georgia has very few distilleries because of very old prohibition era laws that really stifle growth of any beverage alcohol. Breweries had a nice little kick for some time and they continued to grow, but producing spirits still held a lot more stiff law than, than beer did. So I saw something very difficult I saw something very unique that could take place. And I also saw the opportunity for laws to change that would benefit the industry as well. So for me, I I don't really like to do the easy stuff. I think if it's easy, everybody does it. It's one of those things that as soon as I saw the red tape, uh, I said, aha, my favorite thing to do is to try to cut through that red tape and really dive deep. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, let's talk about the
2: distillery of modern art. Doma. How did you come to know the artists whose works are on view?
0: Early on, as we were trying to figure out the the feel, the experience, you know, coming from hospitality, experience is everything. Even if that word kind of gets tired with a lot of people, it's true. The senses are everything to people. Most breweries and distilleries around the country lack a lot of that experience. They generally just have the bare minimum so that they can produce alcohol the customer experience is sort of afterthought until about the last five, six years where people started to really step it up. I saw an opportunity to do something on a more elevated basis that took what I was passionate about being spirits, hospitality, and art and trying to meld those pieces together. So on the offset, really had to come up with the, the name, of course, what the brand identity was gonna be and truly understand how to differentiate ourselves from what everybody else is doing. So being so involved with artists in my entire career, I saw sort of a hole of support for local art. You know, a lot of these situations where local artists get involved or artists from all around the world, it's always a financial transaction scenario. And what I desperately wanted to do is give back to an artist community that had supported me and my business for so long with ideas and collaboration. And while people talk about collaboration in a sense that you know they, they're always willing to bolster other businesses. It's generally because there's something to be made from it, some sort of profit. Thinking about all the galleries around the, around the country and the world, there is so much draw for this art into these galleries, but the galleries take a awful lot of money and commission to show that artwork, which I can appreciate. But when it comes to local artists, if somebody has a thousand or $1,500 painting, to have to then give up that 50% to a gallerist, to me it seemed solely financial and not based on the appreciation of the art and or trying to help boost their career to get them to that next level. So we thought about design and one of the things I was desperate to do was create very unique labels. And so I just reached out to the world that I was associated with and said, look, I'm looking for seven local artists to commission a piece of artwork for me that will represent the spirit in the bottle. So I'd spent a little time recipe developing and I was able to take those samples, meet a plethora of artists and said, okay, here's this spirit, try it. And then I want you to create a piece of abstract artwork that represents this spirit in the bottle. So each one got an individual taste. Then they went back and and started creating. And so what we did, we said, we need a 40 by 40 piece of canvas, again, abstract work. And the idea from that would be to then digitize that artwork. And since it's abstract, we're able to cut it down and use it on the interior of our labels, so the backside of our label, which gives this awesome pop of color, also a really cool juxtaposition as a brown spirit bottle gets depleted, more and more of that artwork gets revealed. So not only are we going to expose local artists to the masses, but we're also creating this very cool unique look on the interior of our bottles. If you stare at any spirits bottle, once they're empty, they're relatively boring. They're either hard to read or there's nothing that makes you wanna keep it unless it's some giant brand that, you know, there's collectors out there that will definitely grab bottles just because of the name on the bottle, but we wanted that art to shine through. So the label itself made from canvas, the structure of the label itself is represented in trim throughout our wood and our building. And then of course that artwork is prominently displayed on the inside. So people can connect with those artists when they pick up a bottle and then feel that same experience as they come into our building and see that artwork displayed. And so for that artwork, that's permanent fixture in our building. As we grow our product line, we'll engage with more local artists to design new, cool, very interesting art to go along with that spirit. The gallery that we have, this is something that changes out every two months, we pair two local artists that are complementary of each other in the gallery space, we charge zero commission for them to be on site, they're able to sell their their art, it draws in a really awesome community of very different types of people. And why not be able to sell cocktails while that's happening. So that art definitely came into play as this ever changing ever-interesting piece where every time you come to the distillery, or for that matter, a reason to come back to the distillery is to see something very different and then also try something very different when you're there.
2: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright's speaking with Seth Watson, founder of the Distillery of Modern Art. Is there a submission process for the artists whose works are on view in the Doma
0: Gallery? Absolutely. So on our website, we've got a submission form. I think as soon as this part of the industry heard that there was an opportunity to showcase, and for a lot of these artists, they may not have been in a gallery before, the floodgates kind of opened up and we've got submissions. Theoretically, if we were to put all these people on our calendar, we're looking at the next two years that are already theoretically booked because of the amount of quality modern art for local artists in this town. So we've got just a a field day worth of uh, of, of great artists that we're going to be able to represent in that gallery.
2: Recently, you said in an interview that you associate the subjectivity of art with the subjectivity of spirits. How is tasting a
0: craft beverage like taking in a piece of art? That's a question I get very frequently. And its I, I stand by that statement with such passion because you could take a $3,000 bottle of whiskey and pour it for somebody. And because they're aware that that is a $3,000 bottle of whiskey, they're going to drink it. Whether they like it or not, they're gonna think in their mind, I'm supposed to like this because it's so expensive. So when we were working through our trials and our recipe development, I was stripping away that marketing and I was pouring $200 bottles of whiskey and $12 bottles of whiskey. And this gave people the opportunity to actually taste something without any sort of notion of what it was supposed to be. And so I lined up the most expensive, the least expensive, and never did the most expensive whiskey ever win in a blind taste test, solely because that marketing was stripped down. Somebody can go look at a piece of fine art and two people standing next to each other, somebody might see it, spend time just sort of staring into the colors and the simplest thing can happen. Someone can say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't like it. The person next to them may simply think, this is the best piece of artwork that I've ever experienced. And so when I say that subjectivity, that's the same with spirits. I think palettes are different. I think the way that people view things are always different. And that's kind of the beauty of culture in general is, well, yeah, you want to appeal to the masses, but you're trying to create something, whether it be, you know, art in any form or a alcohol beverage that you're sort of invoking something from that person. They, their senses have changed. they the, the way they smelled that product brought a memory recall to them where they thought back to a campfire or they thought back to the best restaurant they were ever sitting in. All of the, the types of things that we want to create are the goal is to help invoke something in the senses, whether it be by sight, taste, or smell that brings them somewhere that elevates that experience for them. So when you look at a piece of art, like I was saying, you might think it's the best thing in the world. Next person may think otherwise. And that's the same with spirits. Hmm.
2: I read that all of your cocktails were created by consultant Jeff Banks, a former bartender himself at the Luminary and Watchments. I know they change every month or so, but Seth, what have been some of your favorites created by Jeff Banks?
0: Oh, as far as cocktails, that's a great question. So Jeff created... I'll step back for half a second. Being a manufacturer of distilled spirits, we are extremely limited to what we can sell at our bar. If we did not make the product itself, it cannot be sold or used in any of our cocktails. So even down to there was a mixer, if somebody wanted a liqueur that generally goes with a classic cocktail, we couldn't go and buy that liqueur from a liquor store, bring it back and use it as a mixer. If we need vermouth, if we need any of these items that are not produced in our facility, we can't, we can't use them. So we have to get very creative with the cocktails, usually taking some sort of riff on that classic cocktail and or producing very small quantities of those products so that we can then use them as a mixer. So that's a super challenge, but it's also a lot of fun. So when we get into the nitty gritty of how a cocktail is made, We look to say, well, what could we substitute that for? What could we create to make that interesting? And in doing so, Jeff was able to be very playful with the spirits we do produce. And then creating the uh, simple syrups, the juices, any sort of accompaniment to the spirit, we just create them in-house, which gives greater opportunity to make something very scratch-made and produce a, a, a better flavor. So a lot of questions we get at the bar specifically is, oh, well, is that a really sweet drink or is that very tart? Most people are very used to pre-made mixes of any sort that are heavy in sugar, heavy in, in artificial flavoring like lime and or lemon, and they have a bad association with that type of drink. But because we make all of those products fresh and on site, we're able to introduce these things to people where they are generally standoffish of a particular flavor until they've tried the real thing. And then you get a lot of people who come around to it. So something like our New York sour, it's a play on a, on a whiskey sour, but we make that cherry juice. It's not some heavily sugared other product. We make a espresso martini. And of course we make that coffee syrup in house. So we're brewing fresh coffee. We're grinding fresh beans to use as a, a garnish. And we use oat milk instead of any other sort of dairy. This gives this richness and, and I would just say the word awesome because it's a true word to these cocktails that are very, very different. So I would say the NYC sour, our espresso martini and our play on the margarita where we use our vodka, which has just got an awesome bell pepper syrup that we of course make in house. It gives this not a spiciness from the green pepper, but this very fresh vegetal taste with our vodka and ginger beer. That's just incredible.
2: Mm, There's so much vocabulary to take in. (laughs) So I learned that there are plans for Doma to have an herb garden, and you'd like for guests to pull their own botanicals for beverages. Tell us how you'd like guests to interact with the garden.
0: One of the most important pieces of a distillery is that customer experience. We purposely built this building where every part of our production facility is in view. We encased it all in glass. From the bar, you can stare directly into our still room where you see a gorgeous 500-gallon pot still and an amazing 30-foot column still. Both these things produce alcohol. They can be used interchangeably, so to speak. One's more of a workhorse. One's more of a set-it-and-forget-it style all of that production area is meant to just invoke something. You'll see our distiller through our gallery. You'll just see his hands in the lab creating something. So there's this live art piece to it. You get the smell of cooking grains throughout the building and you get this visual of seeing all these pieces that make this distillery work. When it comes to the cocktail and the experience, it's okay to go out and buy all of these herbs from a wholesaler and then just have them available and keep them in a walk-in cooler and just have them as needed. But the ability to, one, grow those things organically on site means on a daily basis, we're not waiting for some delivery. We're going out into the garden, physically pulling the mint, physically pulling the rosemary, pulling all those items that we created right there and pulling them directly into our bar. When it comes to the botanicals, Any part of the uh, botanicals that we use for our gins, the goal will be to grow a lot of it on site. We will not be able to grow enough for production purposes, but when you come in for a tour and you're learning about a spirit, what better way than to physically put those items in somebody's hands that they can smell, taste, and understand how that turns into a spirit when it's all said and done. So that physical experience of being in the facility and understanding it, and sometimes probably not understanding it, it is easy for someone to take an item and put it in their hands, smell them and taste them and understand, and then try that spirit that they were used to make. It gives somebody all of that that senses of experience. And so we want to draw them in for that.
2: Continuing the Doma experience, what kind of live events do you have in mind?
0: So coming from hospitality and specifically events, we built a beautiful event space inside the distillery that was very intentionally built. So again, this is surrounded by glass for the most part as well, looking back into production. The idea is that that event space can transform into anything a guest would like, come in for a wedding, large corporate event, for concerts. For us personally to do events in this space We of course love art in all of its forms, so performance art. We have already had a comedy night in there, which is pretty typical for a facility like this. It's a good draw to bring people in. It's awesome to be able to be in a space where cocktails are being made right behind you and a really sizable room for the space to grow with depending on the act at that night. We also do a series already called Cocktails and Conversations where we draw in some sort of unique person from the community We've already done something with Atlanta City Council. We've done it with My Distiller. Our current exhibition featuring Dexter Vines and George Genty, very, very well-known comic book artists are currently on the walls in the distillery and on display. We just had cocktails and conversation session with them and somebody walked away with an awesome raffle of that live drawing. And so the whole idea is that you get some good cocktails, you meet these people in a very intimate space, and it's a lot of Q&A. So they'll tell their life stories, how they came to the art, they'll talk about the art that's on display. And then of course, the Q&A will be a really awesome opportunity for people to ask questions in a setting they normally wouldn't be able to.
2: Seth Watson, founder of the recently opened Distillery of Modern Art in Chamblee, More information is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, author Kim Faye tells us about her recent novel, Love and Saffron. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WADE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The author Kim Faye has led what her character Imogen might describe as an adventurous cosmopolitan life. The Seattle native lived in Vietnam for four years, still travels often to Southeast Asia, and wrote the award-winning book, Communion, a culinary journey through Vietnam. Her new novel is Love and Saffron. This story takes place between October 1962 and August 1966, roughly four years. And over the course of those four years, we see a friendship develop between Joan, a young woman who lives in Los Angeles, and Imogen, or Immy, an older woman in Washington State who writes a column about the outdoors for Northwest Home and Life magazine. When we spoke via Zoom in April... They began with an introduction to her main
3: characters. These characters are incredibly precious to me because, you know, all fiction has some basis in reality, at least for me. But these particular characters are very generously, I should say, based on people I know and love. Joan is a young food writer. Working for the newspapers in Los Angeles in the early 1960s. And she's based on the pioneering Los Angeles food writer Barbara Hansen, who in the 1950s and 1960s began writing about different cuisines in Los Angeles at a time when nobody else was. She was writing about foods from around the world. She eventually began writing a column in the Los Angeles Times called Borderland, where she chronicled the Mexican food scene in Los Angeles. And Barbara is a woman of incredible culinary curiosity. She still is to this day. She has an Instagram account and you can follow her in her food adventures. She is, her her curiosity has never waned. And she has always inspired me and I've always wanted to find a way to write about her. And when I began writing Love and Saffron, that way just became abundantly apparent. She writes a fan letter to a woman in her late 50s on Camino Island in the Pacific Northwest. And she sends her a little packet of saffron. And this magazine columnist up in the Northwest is based on my great aunt Emma, who was not a magazine columnist, but was a very strong, incredibly smart Pacific Northwest woman. As I began creating this character of Imogen, my Aunt Emma just came to mind and her qualities began to infuse this character's actions, her her thoughts. And it was a pleasure to explore my great aunt's life and give her opportunities to do things that she may never have done in her actual life. I chose characters of very different ages because of the importance of those relationships in my life. I have dear, dear friends who are 20, 30 years older than me. I have dear, dear friends who are 20, 30 years younger than me. And, you know, it's always surprising because you always think the older teach the younger, but that's not always the case. And I, that's something that comes across in Love and Saffron is that Imogen learns as much from Joan as Joan does from Emmy. And I think there's
2: even one letter where... Emmy says something to the effect of, I'm old enough to be your mother. I'm older than your mother, but I feel more like we're sisters. Or is it Joan to Emmy?
3: I think it's Joan to Emmy, but they do. They, And perhaps this is the nature of letter writing, because when you're writing letters, you're taking away all of the physical You know, you're not looking at somebody every day and thinking this person is this much older than me or this person is this much younger than me. You're writing from your heart. And there are a lot of places in our heart that are very timeless or very universal. And those are the connections that the women make in their letters, which enables them to feel more like very close sisters as opposed to, you know, two women with extreme age difference between them. I'm glad you brought up the
2: letters. The book is
3: subtitled
2: A Novel of Friendship, Food, and Love. It's also a celebration of magazines, newspapers, and, above all, letters. Kim, please tell us why you structure the novel as a series of correspondence.
3: Back to real life. Um... Well, first of all, I just love letters. I'm old enough to have spent my entire childhood up through my 20s communicating with people through letters, whether it was pen pals when I was younger, letters to my grandparents. um, When I was older, of course, letters to boyfriends and friends who'd moved far away. But I I love the special intimacy of letter writing. There's something very... Intimate about sitting alone with a piece of paper and a pen, and the thought of just one other person in mind. In addition, I have had an ongoing correspondence with the essay writer Janet Brown since 1995. We both worked at a bookstore together. I left to teach English in Vietnam. She left to teach English in Bangkok, and we began writing then. But our correspondence has it's continued and. It's been an anchor in my life. You know, there's a point where one of the women says in the book, nothing seems real to me until I write it to you. And that line came directly out of my friendship and correspondence with Janet. I feel the same way. When I get really busy, my life gets a little vague. I need to make sure that I write to Janet and then I, you know, I can anchor myself and bring myself back to earth. And so all of those things influenced writing a book in letters. And when I began writing in the letter format, it just felt so natural. And that's how the book flowed out. Well, it is a huge
2: part of the joy of reading this book is in its structure. And as Joan and Imogen, or Imia, she comes to call her, as they discuss current events... We see the power of letter writing to console or be consoled. The first example is their exchange about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then other history lessons include descriptions of the Seattle World's Fair, Seattle politics, issues surrounding urban development, reaction to Preston Kennedy's assassination and response to the civil rights movement. How do you use the events these women experience to further reveal their characters?
3: It's a complicated question because I wanted this to be a very personal book, and I didn't set out to put any of those issues or events in the book at all. But I realized as the women were writing to one another, if they were writing about their lives, they couldn't write in a vacuum. And then I had to really think what during this time period would be on these women's radar because it depends, do you read a newspaper every day? Are you a radio listener? Do you get your information from Time Magazine? You know, it's not instant gratification of the internet now where we are all bombarded with every bit of news. And so as I wrote, I started to think about what would be the issues affecting these women's lives and also affecting the way they grow as their relationship develops. And it was two part because it was partly about the women and it was partly about me. I was writing this at the beginning of the pandemic I wrote it in the first three months of the pandemic, and I was very aware of what was happening in the world and also how important human connection was at that time. So for example, the Kennedy assassination, I was really thinking about how something on a national or global scale can affect all of us and how we can comfort one another. And in this book, as you mentioned, the form of comfort comes in these letters. And I loved being able to do that because we don't necessarily have that particular source today. I mean, people can still write letters to one another, but they tend not to. No, we like the immediacy
2: of email exchange or text. But if ever there were an ode to the form of letters, it's this book. Thank you. Would you read a portion on page 47 that addresses just what we're talking about, beginning with the words, there is unequaled satisfaction. And maybe you'd like to set it up.
3: This is a point at which the women have been writing to one another for a while, and they're beginning to understand the importance of their own correspondence to one another and how it is affecting their lives, deepening it and deepening this relationship. And so, Emmy, the older woman writes to Joan, there is unequaled satisfaction in composing words on a blank page, sealing them in an envelope, writing an address in my own messy hand, adding a stamp, walking it to the mailbox and raising the flag. It's like preparing a gift, and I feel like I receive one when a letter arrives. Yours most of all. Hmm. I just love that. If you are just
2: tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Kim Fay, the author of Love and Saffron. Now food is a <laughs> driving force in love and saffron will you tell us about the role of food in this story
3: i love writing about food even though i would not call myself a foodie i'm definitely not a great chef i'm a i'm a good cook but i absolutely love what food does not the function of you know sustaining us physically But what happens when you put two people together at a table or whether you put two people together as they talk about their favorite dish or for me when I traveled anytime I sat down at a table, no matter where I was you could find a connection food unites us in so many ways beyond just physical sustenance. And so as I started writing this book, again, I didn't know food was going to play such a significant role. I knew that it was going to play a small part, obviously, because Joan is a food writer. As I wrote, I didn't realize what I was doing. But at the end, I looked back and thought, aha, I have kind of put out my philosophy about what I think food can achieve. Because when we, as I said, when we sit down to a meal together, it just, it gives us the opportunity To have slow conversations. It gives us the opportunity to begin with common ground. You know, I like this dish. Do you like this dish? Have you ever had this dish? I've never had this dish. And it moves conversations, it launches them, and then they go from there into all sorts of different directions. You know, when you think about the end of a dinner party after four hours at a table, all of the ways in which you've gotten to know the people that you're with. And I just absolutely love that. And particularly
2: in the lives of Emmy and her husband, Francis, food leads to their meeting new people. I guess you can say that about Joan, too, because she enjoys exploring different neighborhoods in Los Angeles. Food enables us to see how interested these characters are In other cultures, Mm -hmm. and the respect they show people from backgrounds different than their own. Was that part of
3: your intention? Definitely. That goes a little bit to what I was talking about. I think once I began traveling in my early 20s, the way I learned about other people was through food first. And food was my, I guess, my gateway to other cultures. It was my gateway to understanding that we all are more similar than we are different, but that also the vibrancy of different cultures is really exciting. And to explore it through food is just the best way for me I can think of to do that. I also wanted to find a way, mostly for Emmy, because Joan is living in Los Angeles. So even though it's the 60s, it's still a very diverse world. But Emmy is living in a completely different environment up in Washington. And so I wanted to find ways to introduce new cultures to her that would make sense, that would be natural, would be organic, that wouldn't be forcing her into situations just because I had something I wanted to say. And by doing that, It was really lovely. I I, I like being a participant in the discovery part of a story. It was so lovely to watch Emmy and her husband blossom through this because I didn't expect that. And it was, there's a scene with Francis that I won't give away. But when it happened, I just sat back in my chair and went, oh my goodness, that was wonderful. And I just sat with a smile on my face. So here you are a vessel. Very much you are
2: so. a vessel for these characters, apparently. I found the most moving example of food in this story in the way it unlocks memories for Francis, Emmy's husband. What can you tell us about his history?
3: Francis is based on my great-uncle Frank, who... I just I'm sorry that I laugh but it's his story is the cabin that they live in is the cabin that my great uncle Frank and great aunt Emma lived in they did marry young for the reasons that I give in the book and they did not have children but he I remember all of my great uncles as very very kind and quiet men and I knew that they had all been in World War I, but I didn't really understand what that meant because no one talked about it. You know, I just knew the facts, but I didn't know anything deeper. And that just wasn't something people talked about back then. And so they were so lovely. And my uncle Frank was such a lovely man that when I wrote this book, I wanted to give him an opportunity to open up and to heal. And I don't know if he ever had that opportunity in life. You know, he was, I was very young when he passed, but I thought if I could do that in this book for him, I don't know. It just, it, it felt like the right thing to do.
2: Yes. France has fought in France. He was mm-hmm. part of the song and has what we would now call PTSD. Shell shock, yes. is how they described it back then. What does the saffron do for him?
3: Without giving too much away, the saffron brings back a good memory from that time. You know, obviously, it was a time of war and it was a time of very, well, all war is brutal, but it was a very brutal time without any way of kind of healing from it afterward. And so the saffron brings back probably one of the only good memories he has from that time. And by doing that, it allows him to begin to open himself up in new ways.
2: Yes. I noticed that the word love appears the first time In Joan's letter, dated January 4th, she writes, My dear and beloved friend, Imogen. So this is less than a year and a half from their first exchange. Yes. Will you talk about the way in which Emmy and Joan sign off their letters, sort of
3: the crescendo that builds? This book was written very organically, but there were a couple techniques I would say that I used to show both the development of their characters and the development of their relationship. You know for their characters, I use things, you know, it's very subtle, but the way I use contractions in their writing to show a more casual or a more more restrained. So contractions to give either a more relaxed or more constrained, reflection of what they were feeling as they were writing. And as they sign off, you know, they begin very formally. They're addressing one another as miss and misses because they have not met. But as their letters grow forward and as their relationship grows forward, their sign-offs become more intimate, more personal, and You can look at the flow of their sign-offs to see where they are in the development of their relationship.
2: Author Kim Fay. more information about her recent novel, Love and Saffron, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up... Our series of local artists in their own words. Speaking of the arts, today featuring Travis Smith, Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words.
1: Hi, my name is Travis Smith, and I make weird art. I have a really hard time describing my art in words but I think it falls somewhere between pop art and outsider art. I work in acrylics and pen and ink in a really illustrative fashion. I like to draw patterns that repeat throughout and then fill in with strange little people or creatures or especially with robots. And I think most people know my work from the robots. They've been showing up on my paintings and drawings and stickers and murals for years and years now. I can't remember a time when I wasn't scribbling or coloring or drawing. I've just always been doing it. I've never had any formal training. I'm entirely self-taught. I got more serious about my art in my mid-20s when I moved to Atlanta and started showing in galleries around town such as Beep Beep and Youngblood and Mint Gallery, and I've been showing work ever since. I'm inspired by anything and everything. There are definitely big influences like art and culture, state of the world, music, things like that that I think most artists are inspired by, but I also get inspiration from random everyday things For example, a mural I recently did has the saying, be more courageous, which sounds very grandiose, but it came from a friend telling me about their yearly review at work and the feedback they received was to be more courageous, which seems a little weird for a work environment, but it made for a great mural. I moved to Atlanta in 2001 for my nine to five job. I've been here ever since, which has been over 20 years. I think Atlanta has definitely shaped both me and my art during that time. The culture and history, the food, the music, especially the art scene, and more important than anything else, the awesome people I've met here, they've all influenced my art in one way or another. I live in the riddlestown neighborhood on the edge of Cabbage Town. I think walking around my neighborhood is my favorite place to see new art. There's constantly new murals, new street art that go up on a daily basis. And it's really inspiring just to walk around and take them all in. Also love to check out all the different homegrown artist markets. I think it's a good way to see new art and also meet and interact with the artists. Finally, I love that we have great museums like The High and The Contemporary here. People can check out my work or see what I'm up to on my Instagram account at one, three underscore robots. I also take part in the Drink and Doodle events at ABV Gallery on a pretty regular basis. It's a good chance to see artists draw alive. And finally, you can see my latest mural on Carroll Street in Cabbage Town. It's the Be More Courageous one. I did it as part of the Stack Square project, which is a curated rotation of murals that get changed every six months
2: artist Travis Smith and our series, Speaking of the Arts. More information about Smith's work is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll hear about the Essential Theater Play Festival from their founding artistic director, Peter Hardy, and one of this year's featured playwrights, John Maybe. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City there you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L O I S R E I T Z E S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.